Welcome to the first Ted Hughes Society podcast. I'm Mick Gower, Secretary of the Ted Hughes Society, and in this and the following two podcasts, we'll be looking at one of the most significant but least acknowledged aspects of Ted Hughes's personal life and one of the main wellsprings of his creativity, his passion for fishing. We'll be looking at Hughes's love of the watery environments of river, pool, lake and seashore with the help of Mark Wormold, the chair of the Ted Hughes Society. Mark is a poet, a critic and a fellow at Ted Hughes's old college, Pembroke College, Cambridge, and a devoted fisherman. Mark has recently published The Catch, subtitled Fishing for Ted Hughes, a full-length appreciation of Ted Hughes's lifelong commitment to fishing as expressed in a selection of fascinating fishing diaries and numerous letters to his friends. The Catch also recounts Mark's own early introduction to fishing, his growing absorption in its challenges, frustrations and delights, and how, with the help of Ted Hughes's magnificent collection of poems, River, and guided by those fishing diaries and other archival materials, he went fishing in Ted Hughes's still discernible footprints. On the 25th of April this year, There was a first reading from The Catch, which was streamed to an enthusiastic audience of Ted Hughes Society members. The following podcast and its companions try to capture something of the spirit of that event through a selection of edited highlights and some specially recorded extracts from The Catch. The evening was introduced and chaired by Catherine Robinson. Catherine is a research student at Pembroke College who is working on the presence of the Mabinogion and other Welsh writing in the work of Ted Hughes and Sylvia Plath. And she is also one of an exciting group of younger scholars who are bringing fresh insights to bear on the study of 20th century poetry and especially into the life and work of Ted Hughes. It is my great honour tonight to introduce Mark Wormald. Mark is an award-winning poet, having won the Newdigate Prize at Oxford and later the E.C. Gregory Award from the Society of Authors. He is a fellow at Pembroke College, Cambridge. Mark has edited two collections of essays about Ted Hughes and widely published about Hughes in both top academic publications and fishing magazines. In 2019, he organized Owned by Everyone, the plight, poetry, and science of the salmon at Pembroke, an interdisciplinary conference that, in my mind, carried on Ted Hughes's legacy of conservation, insisting that enjoying fish, poetry, and mythologies of deep waters is inseparable from seeking to protect them and their creatures. Mark Wormald has been fishing since the age of four, first at a pool that his mother, a zoologist, showed him near their home The catch ripples with reflections, so I'll mention via the catch, that Hughes introduced his son Nicholas to fishing at that same age, four years old, and Nicholas went on to become a zoologist. Mark learned to cast a fly, age 17, when his father sent him on a course at the Arundel Arms in Devon, deep in what would turn out to be Ted Hughes' fishing country. This book, The Catch, like Hughes's work, is a song of praise to the lines of inheritance between poetry and knowledge of the natural world. 
I learned reading the catch that Hughes literally lost the ability to speak after fishing. So the fishing diaries were where the words came back, the catch tells us. That electric cycle between silence and words charges and suffuses Hughes's work. This gives me a new way of seeing that too. It's a story about what's underneath the surface, underneath the silence, slowly rising, hauled up, or underneath the noise. How words come back, how creatures do, how memories do. Hughes's fishing diaries in mind and Hughes's book River in hand, Mark set out to fish in Hughes's footsteps. Robert McFarlane calls the catch time slipping and genre shifting. It's a tale of travel, wild places where travelers meet, sometimes across decades, journeys that are also returns. In one of my favorite scenes, Mark reads a poem aloud to the pool that inspired it, returns it to water. This is a wholly visceral version of words coming back. It's a literary biography, one of the most powerful tributes I've read to the non-human relationships that sustain, revive, accompany the self. A story about friendship, too, showing friendship was the matrix in which some of Hughes's most extraordinary work unfolded. And I think these are centers of gravity that are new to Ted Hughes' literary biographies. It reminds us, scholars and fans, that stories about people, sometimes larger than life, can also be stories about a generation. It's a memoir in its own unclassifiable way. There's a real hunger right now, I think, for books that find that point of contact between poetry and the life. This book gives us a new way of talking about Hughes's poetry, invites us to ask where Hughes's poetry might take us. In this traveler's tale, that question is often literal blessing of wild places. For Hughes, fishing was a way of making contact with the self too, in that vital flow, deepening, returning. What happens when that poetry makes contact with a life? And it's a book about fishing. But if the catch shifts genres fluently as shape-shifting creatures in Hughes's poetry, that is embodiment of something elemental the poems of River need their habitat. They can't be understood, not really, at a desk. They need to be fished for, released, grappled with, admired in place and in process, fishing. Stillness, struggle, contact with something wild beneath the surface, immersion in river presence. That's Hughes's phrase. Take this passage about Ted Hughes fishing. The stuff beneath his boot is wild, plunging. And at first he can't name it. It's a thing, black and sudden. He needs to stand in it, square, confront its force before it is river again. And if you are reading river, but are not waist deep in a Devon river, well, having read this, I know how fishing feels, looks. In these pages, Hughes's poems, a river again. 
This extract is from Chapter 3, Stealing Trout. It's set in May 1962, the one spring that Ted and Sylvia and the children enjoyed together in Court Green. It's also in Ted's first season on the River Tor. Whatever else Devon's famous for, fishermen know it for its minnows. 19th century artificials invented by an enterprising tackle shopkeeper in Totnes. They have angled fins set like propeller blades into the shaft of a hollow body, which whirs around a wire shaft threaded through it, with treble hooks behind the tail to snare a trout that lunges at them. That morning, writing to Gerald, Ted thought the swiftness of the river would make that a problem. The currents that brought his worm trundling at its pace back downstream would make controlling that little whirring fish, bringing it downstream at a dash even faster to keep the line taut, really tricky, a challenge he hadn't yet worked out how to solve. It must have been some time between writing that Ger letter to Gerald on the 9th of May and a weekend visit they were to be paid by the couple to whom, on moving to Devon, they'd sublet their London flat that Ted rose to the challenges he set himself. Or plunged into them. He went further, deeper, wilder, bigger, found more excitement and more danger than he could ever have dreamed much closer to home. He went stealing trout on a May morning, and then almost immediately wrote a poem about it, as swift and urgent and as wild a celebration of his manhood in this place, this rushing river, as the experience he'd just had. It's been called the best ever evocation of what it's really like to go fishing. And when Ted came as close to making river his own as he could in 1993, he made sure he added, stealing trout on a May morning, the first great poem of Nicholas's life. But that's only half the story, as he himself came to discover. Stealing trout is no romantic transport of delight. It's a guilt trip, and the family's Morris traveller is not just what takes him there that May morning. It's 5am, and parked half in the ditch, the car's his weapon and accomplice. He sits there, aware of the engine fumes, the long gash. He's just torn in the lacy veil of the dawn. He needs that hot ticking engine to be cold steel. And now he needs to be secreted three fields away. He needs the occupants of those fields and nearby farms to drift back to sleep after the disturbance they've just felt. Easier said than done. Still in the car, the tension wires him. He's aware of how far this intimate hill country of farms and managed gardens is from empty wilderness. Even the leaves on the trees are well connected, plushly on the watch for the invader he is, and he knows and fears they know in the returning hush of this lacy light. The delicate business, he's told himself he's here on, is something else. Something improper, 
is going to happen. And every sheep knows too, for miles around, they're staring at him like priests from their high ground. But then he's out and the world suddenly made new. The air has no memory. The tracery of sunlit dew on the blades and stems of grasses is a brilliant new surface to which the earth, for a moment like a mysterious fish in its darkness, still has to rise. He crosses the field as calm as it is still. Those primroses, those sheep, accept him as he makes his way to the river, feeling the edges of this morning. And the river, when he gets to it, looks down on it from the field edge and the sun clears the brow of the hill and floods the water with light, is amazed with itself too. Even before he sees the fish rising and sinking for the sheer novelty, their gills charged with that brand new liquid light, you know that this is what Ted meant in that letter to Gerald. Whatever else he's here for, he's catching himself, catching the whole morning. And now he follows the fish, becomes one. My mind sinks, rising and sinking, as he plunges into the tunnel of trees, mostly hazels, exchanges the sky's embrace for something suddenly savage. The stuff beneath his boot is wild, plunging, and at first he can't name it. It's a thing black and sudden. He needs to stand in it, square, confront its force before it is river again. He's getting his bearings, stones, gravel, weeds, fish, and under the hazel roots, gaping open like mouths above the flow, the stain which the runoff from the latest rain has bled in to the water from lanes and ploughed fields. The Torin flood can be the colour of blood, I remember from his essay, still twenty years in the future. That red soil leaves its fingerprint. It fascinates in this water, its effects. And though he claims he can... Hardly look at it, because of that delicate business he's here on, because he's here to poach on a beat he hasn't paid to fish. No, just because of the rushing, complex marvel of it. He immediately sees a world sliding past. In this light under the trees, the wide pool tail is as smooth as a table on the move. Where it breaks into a fast run over the lip of a weir, it makes him think... <clears throat> of corrugated iron sheets on shantytown roofs. Then every one of those corrugations becomes a twist, a braid boiling up, the tiniest suggestion of an explosion as spray leaps from a boulder. It's a dazzle of blacks and whites, a mirror slither, with always the hint of danger as he feels his way wading. One full step, and he could be dragged down into drowning skirts of white water and whatever's beneath. But that danger's all part of it. The glamour. Anything, any temptation the water throws at him, roping round his knees, even a drowned woman loving each ankle. He's heavy enough, man enough, to resist. Or at least to wade with them upstream, as now, at last, he starts to fish. He's fishing the river, 
loving the play of light and risk and deception, tackling, realising all the challenges he'd only been wondering about the week before to his brother. Flashing my blue minnow up the open throats of water and across through the side of the rush. This is speed fishing. Reading those lines, speaking them, you feel him casting them. He feels his way through the body of water and parts of other bodies. Beards of debris from spate hang from hazel roots. Even the moss or waterweed he presses over as his boots slide nervously, a high-wire act in knee-deep water is wild nape hair. You feel the hairs on the back of your own neck stiffen at all this. And then he's really in it. It? The river, of course, but other depths too. Soon I deepen. Seven miles off the moor, how long has this water taken to get here? And what's it brought with it into this first light? He hears voices in this moorland river, and the pressure mounts becomes panic at all it holds, all it tells him. But there's no escaping this. He presses on into it. Had there been another storm that night up on the moor? Is he out of his depth? Fishermen take stupid risks wading. Twice I've teetered, wobbled in fast water, chest height, thought, is this it? Then drawn back. But this is something more than that. Somewhere upstream, in the Tor's headwaters or his, a battle has been fought and lost. This headlong river is a rout of all kinds of battlefield debris from another older time. Gun carriages, tumbrils, metal rags. Is this even his dream or his father's? Willie Hughes was a quiet man, a shell-shocked Gallipoli veteran, who would, Ted's sister Olwyn told me, only open up to his children about his war first thing in the morning, when she and Ted would slip into his bed and listen. Or was it something else? All of Dartmoor's water, all the river's bedrock granite, trail past him now. It's frights, it's eyes, with what they have seen and still see. And they unman that heavy man, flashing upstream with the, his blade of a rod and minnow. Undo any pretense of skill he'd had, any aspirations to raise his own one-man company standard. They drag the flag off my head, a dark insistence, tearing the spirits from my mind's edge and from under. From under what? He can't or chooses not to say. Even now, even back in his dark secret study under the attic, when all these words have come back to him. The fish saves him pulls him savagely clear back up into reality. It was there somewhere all along, in that headlong rout of a river. This jumble of dreams and words and letters. It had been there for four years, he reckons. What made the river? Dew, lightning, granite, went into it. A trout, a foot long, lifting its head in a shawl of water. It's his biggest yet, of course. And for just a moment you can convince yourself that its shawled head is lifted in greeting. 
But at the end of the fight, the battle, as the strength of this fish, all its fins strange, taut against the line, his split cane rod, that American reel, and the little treble hooks in his Devon minnow in its mouth, it stares him down, as the sheep had done, pricks his conscience, goes deeper again, getting a long look at me. So much for the horror. It has changed places. The catch. He doesn't need to say the kill. And then the scene changes one last time. As the morning comes, the sun has its way with the frost and pear blossoms unstiffen. Like barmaids in a country pub, brassy wood pigeons add their voices to the rivers. And over the mantelpiece of that pub, just under an old mangy fox head, there's a painting from the first years of the century, before Henry Williamson had gone to war or returned to write Tarka. And it's Ted. He has entered his dreamland, taken his place. If this is what stealing trout is, how could I not want to try all this for myself? Sleep the night before is fitful, adrenaline and owls. Through my open window at the half-moon in Sheepwash, I hear them in the small hours, their calls and, better still, their claws on the roof above my room. And then it's 4.20 and I'm awake and on the road by 4.30. This time the sky is grey and lightning. I drive in my waders to save time. I've also put up my rod, tied on my minnow. I'll start with the green one because I'm a novice at this. When, as I'm sure is bound to happen, I lose that on some deep sunk rock or by wrapping it round some irretrievable high branch, I'll graduate to blue. At 4.50, I'm within range, but lose three agonising minutes waiting for a herd of cows to make it into the parlour for the first milking. What will the farmer make of this strange car in the lane? Will he take my number? And now I'm inching past that farm, window down, ear agog for barking dogs and nosing along the track and am here. Not quite half in the ditch. What if I can't get out? How could I ask a farmer for a pull with his tractor? How could I possibly explain without making things worse? A friend with whom I've risked the barest outline of this plan at once saw how absurd this was offered me to bring a file in a pike. It's not just trespassing, not just poaching. Since Ted's day, spinning has been prohibited on the tour. It is too easy. But I'm a fly fisher. I always have been. This doesn't feel easy to me. I've been practising lobbing the minnow across our garden lawn. Even on that flat expanse, it is a hit-and-miss affair. Earnest, relentlessly optimistic North American wilderness YouTube tutorials have hardly reassured me. This is North Devon, not Colorado. So I remind myself, as I cross the third field, scattering ewes and their lambs, checking for river, as well as spare line and blue minnow expectant in my way to pocket, 
This is a pilgrimage. This will be a ritual cast. I am here for the place, for the experience. I am, I realise, doing my best to let myself off my treble hooks, even before I'm at the river. But then I, too, have to turn my back on the sky, confront the river sunk ten feet below me under the dark canopy of hazels. Ted could hardly look at it in its ferocity. Knowing this heightens my curiosity for what I'm about to enter. Even as I'm scrambling as quietly as I can manage down over roots, mouths, limbs, and letting my first boot in, I know it's not the snarling water it was, whether 55 years or a day ago after Wednesday's heavy rain. That will already have passed through. But still I wade, still I deepen. I manage to flick, not flash, that green minnow upstream. Remarkably, it comes back. Sometimes it's true after a brush with weed. It runs beside those hazel roots, those mouths open still. I even forget why I'm here. Light is strengthening too. The sun hasn't yet emerged over the ridge to the east, but already in two or three quiet pools I come to, easing quietly upstream, fish are rising and falling, and yes, rising to flies, snouts bulging the surface for some insect about to break through the meniscus. They look serious, those rise forms, determined. Hunger keeps you keen. I find boulders mid-river at the head of a pool and remember below their braids to turn and watch the water round my ankles. Drowned women? Maybe not. But then I'm not Ted Hughes. His solitude and the life he leaves to find it is not mine. I am a fisherman, though, and now I've rounded another corner, and I'm beside a run. I decide to go with the flow, full of admiration for Ted, in a river that was once twice this strength. I want to try casting as convention says I should. If nothing else, I want to feel the spinner alive against the current, feel the thrum of those whirring pectorals. The minnow goes out, fully 15 yards into the water at the far bank. I start to retrieve, bringing it up through the widening, slackening water towards my casting position at the head of the run, then cast again, this time searching the water on the near side of the current's full force, then once more, as close as I can to mid-river, right into the flow. And then it happens. The rod bucks and jags, and I have one, a real member a red-spotted trout. The energy is extraordinary. I lifted after 30 thrilling sessions and I want to shout. Instead, I lift it through the shawl of water and discover only a little trout, a tall reckling, only twice as long as the minnow itself, but a dorsal fin like a schooner's mainsail and a spirit to die for. Or, no, to live for. I dampen my hand, slip the hook free of where the fish had grabbed it, through the cartilage of its lower jaw, admire it, slip it back. It surges away. I have what I came for.